This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the Journal of IE's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, has the COP28 deal really ended the reign of fossil fuels? Well, the news from COP28 in Dubai is that almost 200 countries have finally agreed that the world should transition away from fossil fuels. It was the first time that all fossil fuels were addressed in the 28-year history of the climate conferences. Now, the deal was a final attempt to break a deadlock between nations seeking the phasing out of oil, gas and coal and the Saudi-led crude producers. The negotiations went on through the night and the final text now calls for the transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner. So today we're asking, is there something of note to celebrate here? Or, like previous environmental pronouncements, are we looking at more smoke and mirrors with no real accountability or change? To look at all of this today, we're joined by our own Lauren Boland, who's been reporting from COP28 for us at The Journal here. Lauren, welcome back from Dubai and thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Laura. So Lauren, we've spoken to you about this before, but firstly, can you tell us what exactly is a COP? Yeah, so the COPs, it stands for Conference of the Parties. And basically what that means is there these conferences where countries get together to make decisions around climate action. So it's essentially every country in the world, it's every country that signed up to the United Nations Framework on Climate Change um, back in 1992. And since then, there's been these annual meetings where countries try to make decisions about what they're going to do around climate, looking at where things stand... It's a forum where world leaders come and set out their stalls in a way, trying to show off to to other countries what they're doing on climate. But there's also a lot of very technical negotiations happening, which are the real reason for the COP, um, where they're looking at very sort of technical details around what actions countries might or might not be asked to take around climate change. But so Lauren, it's obviously very high level and everyone watching it around the globe. But what's the point of it? Is anything really binding here? Some of it is. And this is a this is a really important thing with it, with every sort of UN agreement or document like this. It always comes down to really fine points in the language about whether or not it's actually binding. So things like our countries called upon to do something or are they invited to do something or are they requested to do something all of these little kind of language quirks that show up in the documents and often in the in the final hours of negotiations that's the kind of thing it comes down to is how binding actually will a request upon countries be so typically what you'll see at the start of a cop is there might be quite high ambition for the level of action to be taken and the level of obligation to be placed upon countries. But then as the, as the two weeks of the conference goes on and countries disagree around certain areas, that tends to be weakened down. So you've been there for us at the Journal. So what is it like being there? Is there a sense of hope? Are you seeing all sorts of people from all walks of life there? It's a real mixed bag. I think because people come with so many different perspectives, there is a really wide range of what people hope to get out of the COP. So in a general sense, there is hope because it is quite impressive in one way to have this forum where nearly every country actually sends 
a head of state or head of government to come and you know speak to the conference they'll also send a, de- a delegation which is sort of maybe other ministers and, and civil servants who are there to sort of look at what their country can bring to the table and then you also have all these sort of civil society groups non-governmental organizations campaigners academics loads of people who are there for two weeks specifically to talk about climate which is there, there's not too many other sort of uh, venues or co- you know conferences like that that happen around the world to, to, to at such a scale to deal with issues. But then it is also it is also underscored in other ways by these sort of by negatives. So things like fossil fuel lobbyists being given access to the conference, which is seen as as a real something that really risks undermining the integrity of the conference. If you have industry figures there who have interests that very much stand in opposition to what what we need to do to prevent the climate crisis from taking over. Also, things like when the conference first started out, it was much smaller than it is now. Um, it was much more focused on the technical negotiations that were happening. As the years have gone on, there's more and more sort of side events and talks which are useful, but the scale of those now has gotten quite large. And there are a lot of questions around whether there's become too much of that and whether there's too much now of a sort of a trade fair element to these cops that maybe takes away some of the focus from the, the real action that's happening. And it's funny you mentioned that trade fair uh, approach because this was a criticism coming up to this cop, wasn't it? That there was some suggestion that some fossil fuel lobbyists were there to do more than talk about climate. Yeah, and I think especially in the context of this cop being hosted in the United Arab Emirates, the 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 country that hosts the cop changes every year, and it, it rotates between regions, and essentially each region gets to a point. the country to hold it. So last year it was in Egypt where there were a lot of questions around human rights and the ability of climate activists to go and to protest. Similar questions around that actually this year in Dubai, but also this this sort of the shadow hanging over it of the fact that the UAE is a country that has a very strong, an economy that is very strongly linked to oil, to fossil fuels, and the sort of what that implies for, for then a climate conference where you very much need to make decisions around cutting fossil fuels. How does that line up then with it being held in a country like that? So before we drill into exactly what happened with this COP28 and the outcome of it, what have been the positive achievements and failures from the previous COPs? I think the most positive outcome to come out of recent COPs would have been COP21 in Paris in 2015. So that was where countries signed up to the Paris Agreement, which said that countries should try to limit global warming, ideally to 1.5 degrees and definitely to no more than 2 degrees. So that's the the amount of the amount of rise in average temperatures compared to pre-industrial levels. That was seen as a real landmark moment that finally there was an agreement around a limit that the world needs to stay within and that countries would also be asked to go away to put together plans at a national level and come back, submit those to the UN and that that would be a sort of a path for how the world would stay within those manageable levels. 1.5 or 2 degrees of temperature rise will still have significant impacts for the planet. We're currently sort of hovering around 1.1, 1.2 degrees of temperature rise compared to pre-industrial levels, which seems very small, but actually it doesn't take a huge amount. It doesn't take a huge number on paper for us to really feel the impacts of a changed climate. 
So that agreement at COP21 in Paris was really significant for setting out a clear, clear figures and clear path to what countries were going to be asked to do. The problem then is that the actual implementation of getting action going is much harder. It's, it's hard to get countries to agree on more specific actions. So, for example, then at COP26 in Glasgow two years ago, that was a COP where you started out with kind of some quite strong ambition around things like cutting down coal or cutting down fossil fuel subsidies. And by the end of the two weeks, the ambition that had been started with had been really weakened down. And actually, the cop, the president of that cop was Alok Sharma. It was held in Glasgow, and he, when he made his closing speech, he, you could see you could see he was actually quite emotional because it was seen as quite a disappointment the outcome of that cop. So, big positive back in Paris in 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 twenty fifteen, but it's been a bit of a slog since then. There does seem to have been a bit more wind in the sails here in Dubai, whether you, whatever your view of the prevalence of the fossil fuel industry at it. But what were the main points then of discussion, Lauren, the main items on the agenda for this COP28? Let's start maybe with loss and damage first. Yeah, so loss and damage was, I suppose, sort of finishing off what something that had been started last year. So last year, COP27, loss and damage was put on the agenda for the first time. And essentially what loss and damage is, is that idea of the impacts that particularly vulnerable countries are already experiencing because of climate change, whether that's droughts or flooding or, or heat waves or, or sea level rise or those sorts of impacts that are really damaging countries, particularly developing countries or small island countries, and looking at how other countries, particularly wealthier nations, could provide support to those countries in financial terms. So last year, countries agreed to create that fund, but they sort of left all of the finer details of, of what that would actually look like. Um, they put that off on the long finger until this year. And between COP27 and COP28, there was a committee that sort of met and tried to figure out some of those details. So then on the first day of this COP, what we saw was countries agreeing to set up that fund with the details that had been organised. And that meant that wealthier nations were able to start making pledges to the fund. So that started the COP off on, on quite a positive note because the loss and damage issue was something that had been a huge focus for climate justice campaigners for a long time now. And last year, getting it on the agenda in the first place was a really big step. And then to see that come to fruition this year was really important. Now, there were a lot of caveats to that. So there was a lot of details of the fund and how it's going to be operated that the countries benefiting from the fund weren't necessarily particularly happy about. So, for example, it's the fund is going to be hosted by the World Bank, whereas smaller countries, island states, had really wanted a sort of a newer, separate entity to host it because they're not historically they've raised issues with the World Bank that they're not comfortable with exactly how it operates in terms of providing support to vulnerable countries. And you can understand that, Lauren, too, when you think of it. We know from our own history that it's very hard to get wealthy countries to support poorer countries. So it's 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 easy to see why they're not very hopeful. Yeah. And, and what we saw was in the first few days of the COP, countries started to announce pledges. So you had some significant ones, I think it was $100 million from Germany, $100 million from the United Arab Emirates, $100 million from Italy. Um, 
some less significant, the United States pledged $17 million, which for the size of the United States and its impact on climate change was really seen as, as a bit of a kick in the teeth, to be honest. Um, Ireland pledged €25 million euro split across two years. Um, and also the Irish pledge is coming out of a previous commitment that was made for €225 million euro to be Push towards international climate finance. So that's from climate activists here in Ireland. That's been seen as quite a disappointment because um, one campaigner described it to me as sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul situation, that that funding is something that was already there and going to be going towards helping other countries, to, you know, to mitigate climate change, to reduce their emissions and also to adapt to the impacts that are happening to try and protect them from causing damage in the first place. So if you're taking away funding from those areas, that sort of means that loss and damage is going to need more funding because if you're not lowering emissions and you're not protecting people from the impacts, then of course you are going to continue to experience those impacts and, and that's going to get worse and worse as the years go on. So that was sort of seen as a disappointment that, that the Irish funding wasn't new money. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, Make sure you're on daft.ie, the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. And Lauren, then our listeners might have heard of the term the global stock take. What is that and what's it now saying? So the global stock take is a sort of assessment of where we're at on that Paris Agreement goals. So after the Paris Agreement countries were told to go away and write these plans called nationally determined contributions, which is what they were going to do to try to keep the world within those 1.5 or 2 degree limits. Now, what we know from the assessments that have happened is that we are way off track on staying to those temperatures. So what was happening then at COP28 under this text called the Global Stock Take was that it was looking at what countries need to do now to try to get back on track. And a key issue in that was on fossil fuels. So we've known for years from science that there's a really clear link between extracting and burning fossil fuels and producing the greenhouse gas emissions that are trapping heat inside the atmosphere. That link has been known for decades. But despite that, COPs have been very slow historically to actually recognise that because of the sort of political dynamics that happen in negotiations and some countries being highly, highly reluctant to let that kind of, to let it get into that territory. So this year it was seen as really necessary that something needed to change and that there needed to be something about fossil fuels and cutting them out in that global stock take text. But it's been politically contentious in the past and it continued to be politically contentious this year and that caused quite a lot of stir over the two weeks of the conference. Now, the big drama, of course, was the delay to the final agreement in Dubai this week. What exactly did that centre around? So that centred around that fossil fuel question. What you see over the course of the conference is that as countries proceed through negotiations, there'll be different drafts that come out of what the final version of a decision text might look like. So around that fossil fuels question, we had an earlier version of the text that kind of set out three options for what it might include. One sort of looking at whether there will be language around phasing out fossil fuels or phasing them down or or whether even perhaps the text might actually continue to ignore them and whether there might be nothing in there at all around fossil fuels. Then on Monday, 
there was a new version of the text that came out that really caused a bit of a shockwave because it gave a list of actions that it said countries, quote, could include in measures that they would take. So that language of could include effectively meant that countries could choose or not choose to do any of the actions listed below that. And the point under that list on fossil fuels referred to reducing fossil fuels as opposed to phasing them out. So that term phase out is what a lot of climate campaigners were really pushing for because to phase out implies eventually getting rid of them altogether. Whereas language like reducing or phasing down is much vaguer. It's much harder to measure that and it puts far less obligation on countries. So when that draft text came out on Monday, which was the day before the conference was due to end, that really threw a spanner in the works. And it meant that negotiations went on later. It's not unusual for cops to finish late, um, but I think that was quite a sort of 11th hour um, upset. And so the negotiations continued through Tuesday and, and into kind of the late hours of last night slash early hours of this morning. But we've seen now a new text come out that is a step beyond Monday's version. So it's a little bit better in terms of looking at cutting fossil fuels. It's a little bit more binding on countries, but it's still not what climate campaigners and vulnerable countries, small island states that are at the front lines of bearing climate impacts. It's still not what they would have wanted it to be. And Lauren, I'm guessing you don't have to be a genius to work out who exactly was in favour of pushing for this final deal and who wanted the watered down version. Give us an indication of who was on each side. Yeah, exactly. So the countries who would have wanted really, really high ambition around cutting fossil fuels, phasing them out, countries that you have leading that charge would be small island states. So who have been very vocal for years about how They have contributed so little to the climate crisis. Their emissions are so low, but yet they are the ones who are bearing the impacts of it already and whose existence is really threatened in the the near future um, before other countries are going to start experiencing the impacts. Then on the other side, you have countries like Saudi Arabia in particular, who have economies that depend quite a lot on, on oil exports who would really were really pushing back against any sort of language around phasing out fossil fuels. And I mean, that's been the story of COPs for years now, that sort of division between countries. And Lauren, there's always great fanfare when there's a deal like this placed out into the world. And, you know, it sounds very promising. But what are climate activists saying? Does this final wording come anywhere close to being enough to bring these emissions under control? Or is there any form of even policing? People are welcoming the fact that fossil fuels have finally been included. So like I was saying before, there's never really been any sort of commitment around fossil fuels as a whole before. There's been a couple of things around coal, but but never sort of this kind of all-encompassing language around fossil fuels like this. So that has been welcomed, but it's in the wider context of a sort of disillusionment, given the fact that it has taken this long to get to this point. And in the face of how urgent the climate crisis is, it, it makes it almost a sort of a bittersweet victory. The fact that finally this is in the agreement, but gosh, it has taken far, far too long to get it there. And the exact language around fossil fuels in this version of the text that's now been agreed 
it calls for a transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So it is quite clear language in terms of the need to to get rid of fossil fuels, but it doesn't go as far as that call for a phase out. It's still language that is a little bit vaguer. So transitioning away, also the, the addition of specifying fossil fuels in energy systems. And then also that language around orderly and, and equitable manner. In some ways that could be seen as allowing for the fact that you know some countries that, that in their own domestic energy systems are still highly dependent on fossil fuels may need more time than others for, that are further ahead in terms of getting renewable energy systems in and maybe have more more financing in order to do that. It might seem as being a sort of a fair addition for those countries, but it could also be seen as another sort of get out of jail free card for countries that just don't really want to make that change yet. So it's 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 that sort of catch-22 that's always going on with these COP agreements where there's something good there, but there's also a lot left to be desired. And Lauren, then what are the next steps as part of this agreement? For example, what would Ireland do? So in the short term, I don't think we're going to see a huge amount of change in our climate policy trajectory. And by short term, I mean, say in the next year or so, we know that the Climate Action Plan for 2024, that's due to be published before Christmas. So I wouldn't expect what was agreed at COP28 to really have any significant influence on that document other than perhaps maybe a mention of it in the introduction. But realistically, that that policy plan is probably already pretty much set in place. In the years to come then, in the next couple of years, Ireland and other countries are going to be asked to submit updated versions of their nationally determined contributions. So those were the plans that they had to come up with under the Paris Agreement. They're now being asked to to put together updated versions of those. So I think that'll be the first test that will really show how what's been decided at this COP will influence plans in the years to come. But the thing about Ireland as well is that we already know we have a really long way to go on climate action. We've had warnings from lots of agencies now. So the the Climate Change Advisory Council, the EPA, um, and even just as recently as today, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, all saying that we are way off track at keeping our emissions within our carbon budgets which are sort of national limits that that, that, that uh, the government has set out that would help us stay within our overall climate targets. And our emissions are not falling fast enough to stay within those. When you think of it, we like to think of ourselves as great global citizens here in Ireland. And if we can't reach our targets, then you'd wonder, are the cynics saying that COP really isn't the right forum for all this change? Is it any way effective, do you think? It's really difficult because if this forum doesn't work, which is a forum where you have buy-in from pretty much every country in the world. You have the majority of heads of states and governments turning up every year. You have climate ministers, finance ministers, foreign affairs ministers, civil servants, and all of the civil society groups. If that can't get the job done, then what can? It's very difficult to imagine what other type of forum could do it. Um, I think there are lots of things, there are lots of good things that come out of COPs. Sometimes it's the very small technical details that, that don't necessarily make the headlines because maybe they're more difficult to understand. They might be about quite complicated areas, but they are there behind the scenes and it's important that they're happening. 
it reminds me in one way of, of during COVID when we talked about the vaccine and when we were looking at, you know, there was, you know, conversations around how many people had, had died of COVID and, and that number, may, sometimes aspersions being cast on, oh, COVID's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. But then you look at, well, we had a vaccine in place. We had all of these restrictions in place. What would have happened if th- those hadn't been implemented? And I think there's a similar, maybe, s- there's a similar question you could ask here of where, when we talk about are cops doing anything? Well, they're probably, they're definitely not doing enough. But where would we be if we weren't having those? And I think we would definitely be in a worse place without them. We could be in a much better place than we are. But I think without them, we could also be in a significantly more dire position. So it looks like the short answer is uh, flawed, but it's all we have for now. Look, thanks so much, Lauren, for outlining all of this for us today and for all your great reporting from Dubai and all your climate reporting for the journal here. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mel, Laura. This episode of The Explainer was supported by daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thanks again to Lauren Boland for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.